are starting a new series on 1st Thessalonians, which I'm very excited about. And we're actually going to be reading from chapter 1, verses 2 to 10. I'll give you one second to get that ready. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 2 to 10. I'm reading from the NIV. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, and you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out for you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming life. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Thank you very much for that, Jono. It's greatly appreciated. And to Caress for doing worship for us this morning. Wow, when we have a look around, even with this morning when we're trying to get things sorted out for this, it's, it's really quite evident the fact that we experience problems. Uh, we experience problems from within. We experience problems from without. Problems seem to be a general everyday occurrence with us in life. And What's always really nice for us in those problems or while we're going through such things is to receive a word of encouragement, to receive a word of encouragement from a brother or from a sister or whoever the case may be. And this morning, as we look at First Thessalonians, we're going to look at some of this encouragement that Paul seeks to give. Just to provide a bit of context, if you have a look in Acts chapter 17, in Acts 17, we have a little bit of an issue where Paul and Silas and Timothy and most probably Luke, because he's the person who had written this, actually go through to Thessalonica. And Paul, as was his, as was his modus operandi, as his MO, he goes to the synagogue and over three weeks he goes there reasoning with the Jews about how the Messiah had to suffer about the, how the Messiah suffered and, and how he would die and then rise again from the dead. You have a look at that in verses 1 to 3. I'm then told from that in, in verse 4 that some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Jews and sorry, God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Now, while there were a lot of people that actually did come to know who Jesus was as their saviour, there were a lot of people who didn't. There were a lot of the religious leaders who actually kicked up a bit of a stink, and they hired some of the, the unruly types to actually cause a bit of trouble. And they were looking to track down Paul and Silas to actually give them a really hard time. They went to Jason's house and they dragged out Jason trying to find where Paul and Silas were. And there was a bunch of things that took place that resulted in Paul having to move on. 
Paul and his team having to move on for the sake of their safety. And you see that in verse 10. So thus, after three weeks, the Thessalonian church, for want of a better word, had to fend for themselves. Now, before I get into today's message, I want to make a very important point here. That the establishment of this church isn't based upon Paul, nor was the establishment of this church based upon Silas or Timothy or Luke for that matter. It was based upon the person of Jesus Christ who promised to build his church. It was based upon God's word that would never pass away. It was based upon the power of the Holy Spirit that proves the world of sin, righteousness and judgment as you read in John 16. You see, in only three weeks, Paul pointed this group of believers to Jesus and his teaching. In only three weeks, the scriptures were faithfully proclaimed. In only three weeks, all focus was taken off these men and placed upon God that was able to take that gospel seed and bring it to fruition. And in only three weeks, the power of God was established, sorry, was manifest not only in the establishment of this church, but in this church's continuation, which points to three really important truths that you and I need to be reminded of. One, that it's God that gives the increase. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Two, that it's the Lord Jesus who builds, Matthew 16, verse 18. And three, that it is by the Spirit's power, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That basic thing shows us that when God is the focus and that when God is involved, his work presses on regardless of who is or is not present. That his work will carry on regardless. Not saying that this church didn't have issues, but the blessing of this Thessalonian letter is that even with the limitations that they had, meaning the amount of time that Paul had to invest into him, God took what little that was there and did something amazing. It's much like how he takes the bread and the fish in John 6, that little boy's lunch, and fed the multitudes. This is what we see evident in this Thessalonian letter that Paul writes. So this morning, as already shared, we're going to begin a new series in 1 Thessalonians to look at the encouragement Paul gives to this young church and prayerfully, well, not even young church, to this church and prayerfully will draw encouragements for us too, regardless of the context that we are in and the issues that we're facing. So if you want to bow your heads and join me in a word of prayer, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that it is you who gives the increase, that it is you who builds, and that it is by the power of your Spirit you bring these things about. We ask now, Lord, that by your Spirit you will open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear and soften our hearts to respond to the wonderful truths, to the wonderful encouragements that Paul gives these Thessalonians. But Father, in the context that we find ourselves in even now, you might minister to our hearts to change our focus and have them upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, speak to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, several weeks ago, uh, our, we had a leader study. 
And I was greatly encouraged in the leader study because we were looking at this particular chapter. And I asked the leaders to take one verse from this passage and use it to describe somebody else within the group. And to me, it was one of the greatest and most encouraging times as I witnessed brothers and sisters speak the scriptures, the, the God-breathed word into the lives of others. And, and just seeing the power of God's word just be impressed and communicated in such a way. I was, I was, I was just so encouraged after that, whether it was the thankfulness, as you look at verse 2 for them, whether it be the remembrance of active ministry, and you look in verse 3, the privilege of God's love and election in verse 4, the power of, of joy in the Holy Spirit in verses 5 and 6, as well as the testimony that one has that can affect others both in and out of your sphere of influence as one serves faithfully. When you look in verses 7 to 9, all the while spurred on with the hope of our, of our Savior's imminent return in verse 10. And so this morning, in looking at the situation of this Thessalonian church, I see how Paul seeks to encourage these believers. It begins with Paul identifying who they are, resulting in the factors of their conduct, giving them a testimony that shines brightly for God's glory. And this first comes in connection to their identity, who they are. In verses 3 to 5, it, that'll be up just here for you to look through. But what I love about the beginning of this letter is the encouragement that he gives to this young church. I'm going to say it again. He, he was only with them for three weeks, three weeks. And then this letter comes a few months later. And yet in that short time that he is away from them, he speaks to their, to their work produced by faith, to their work produced by faith. What is, what is work that produces faith or, or faith that produces work, should I say, or work produced by faith? Um, we already know from Hebrews eleven six that faith is what pleases God. Because without faith, it is impossible to please him. You see this demonstrated with the likes of, say, the Roman centurion, when he demonstrates his faith and trusting the Lord and the authority of the Lord Jesus. You see this with the woman with the issue of blood when she reaches forth and touches the hem of the Lord's garment. You know what it is that faith pleases the Lord. And yet, so what is this work faith produces? It is the outworked action that falls in line with God's will and with God's ways. In the most basic of terms, this work faith produces is obedience to God's word because you know God's word to be true and you accept that as truth. For example, as an illustration, if you look in Numbers 21, the camp of Israel, the nation of Israel, is overcome with poisonous snakes. Moses is commanded by God to make a bronze serpent and then to stand that serpent in the midst of the camp those who were bitten by a venomous snake were then instructed to look at the bronze serpent and they in turn would receive healing this numbers 21 verse 9 now 
faith in and of itself is useless. For a person that was bitten by a snake who knows, I must then look at this bronze serpent to be healed, for them to know that isn't enough. For them to understand that isn't enough. It involves them acting on what they know and understand and what they believe. If they then believe that word, they in turn would then result in them performing that action. Because of the faith they have in the word communicated to them, it follows with the work that falls in line with that. Once they looked at the bronze serpent, they received healing. This is the whole argument James gives in James chapter 2, that faith produces works. And that's what we see here, that that's the work that faith produces. It is evidenced in works. Thus, this Thessalonian church were commended by that. They were commended for their obedience to God's word. They were commended for their adherence to God's words, not just in thought, not just in principle, but also in action. That's why they were commended. Because it was a work produced by faith. The second thing he's commended, that they're commended for is a labor prompted by love. Where the first thing is, is, the, is looking at the action, what it produces. The previous commendation looks at what they did. This commendation looks at why they did it. A labor prompted by love. Now, I've been married 27 years. Married 27 years. In that 27 years, I have come to discover how, in relationships in general, how sometimes you do things and they mean nothing. And they mean nothing. It's like how, you know, I don't know, for you guys that are married out there, your wife might say to you, you don't buy me flowers. Now, my wife doesn't like flowers. That's the advantage I have being married to my wife. She doesn't like flowers, which is really cool for me because then I don't have to buy them. Because her reasoning is they're just going to die. And I think, yeah, that's cool. Why waste money on something that's going to die? Um, that's a whole other sermon. All right? But, but the, re- the reason is she says they're just going to die. But let's say, say, you never buy me flowers. And so you buy flowers. And then your wife or your partner says to you, that doesn't mean anything because I had to tell you. Because it was a labor not prompted by love, it was a labor prompted by obligation. It was a labor prompted by, say, a responsibility. Nothing, there's nothing wrong with being resp- responsible, there's nothing wrong with that. We're talking about here, though, that it was a faith, pro- sorry, a labor prompted by love. And that's what the Apostle Paul emphasizes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, when he says, Christ's love compels me. Christ's love motivates me, as well as what the Lord Jesus says in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. It is important to balance obedience with the right motivation, or else we'll fall into the same condemnation that the church at Ephesus did in Revelation chapter 2, that we have forsaken, that we have left our first love. So they are commended for their their work produced by faith. They are commended for their labor prompted by love. And they are commended for their endurance inspired by hope. Hope Hope for what is to come. Hope for something better. Hope that looks forward. Hope that aids one in enduring the current situation. Now, on on Friday, should I say, year 12, 
finished. They graduated, they got their HSC to come up. And in talking with a lot of these students who are graduating, they put up with their 12, 13 years of education for this one point where they can finally say, it's coming to an end. Yes, all right, I'm done, I'm free. And then they experience the real world. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun for you when you get there. All right, so then they experience the real world. Okay, but as soon, but you, you've got this hope that there's going to be an end, that there is an approaching finality. We have that hope for us, in regardless of what we're going through. For example, COVID. There's the hope that this would come to an end. I don't know how soon or how far away, but there's the hope that it's going to come to an end. Look at Victoria. There's a hope that it's coming to an end as they start easing restrictions. And as you have that hope, there is a certain amount of endurance that arises because you know it's going to finish eventually. Because once hope fades, despair arises. Once hope is quashed, meaninglessness, as in what's the point, seeps in and destroys Everything. It is why the enemy seeks to destroy us by taking away our hope because our hope is Christ. He wants to get our eyes off Christ to remove our hope. Colossians 1.27 says, The glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what causes us to endure because he is our hope. The strength in this, in this one verse, in this commendation, and this encouragement comes not from what they did, not from, from what they've attained, but rather from who they are, or more accurately, who God has made them in Christ. Once again, it's not a time factor. Remember, it was only three weeks. It is not a time factor, but a dependence factor a trust factor, a faith factor in God. You see, that is what makes all the difference. So he says, so he says, brothers and sisters, after he commends them in this way, he says, brothers and sisters, which looks at the family connection. You are loved. You are loved. You are chosen by God. And you are empowered by God, not just in theory, but also in practice. As you read further on in that passage, this encouragement doesn't change for the here and the now. For us as people belonging to God through faith in Christ, because we are loved by God. Present tense. Present tense. And that love does not change. It does not change. I was Mentioning this earlier on to somebody that recently I was feeling a little meh, just meh, just feel, you understand, just meh, just feeling a little meh with, in, in my relationship with the Lord. I, I couldn't pinpoint anything specifically. It's not like I was, I was in outright sin. It wasn't like I was going around deliberately, you know, jumping into things I know I should. It wasn't like that. It was just meh. That, that's just how, how it was. I don't know if you felt like that, but at one point I was feeling like that myself. It was almost like I was running on automatic. Okay? But as I spent some time in prayer and, and meditating in the scriptures, I, this one morning I was praying and the Lord spoke to me in the fact that even in my, even in my 
me, I am still loved by him. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 8. That, that, the, that, the, that the, the, meh, the meh reminds me of what life is when my actions, even when my desires, move away from what God has made me to be. You look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, as his workmanship. And that in my meh, he could bring about my good. In Romans 8, 28. That is because I am loved by God. Not only am I loved by God, I am chosen, which speaks to the privileged position I have in Jesus Christ. And see, this is a different word used from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, when it says you're a chosen generation, that can be translated as the word favored. This word here points to the aspect of being divinely selected. Divinely selected, which is an encouragement to this young church, especially in their specific context. This would have been a strengthening word, not to puff them up, not to make them feel superior, but in conjunction with their call to shine as a light, with the call to preach the gospel, being instant in season and out of season, to that, that idea of being divinely selected in connection or in conjunction with their call to represent Jesus Christ would be an enabling factor for them to fulfill and to go out and spread God's word through all Thessalonica. You know what that means then for us? You know how we have been divinely selected then by God? It is not so that you and I can walk around feeling superior. It's not that you and I can walk around thinking we're better than anybody else. It's so that you and I, being divinely selected, can go to all the links of the globe and proclaim the love that has caused us to be divinely selected. You see, you might be the only only Christian in your family. You might be the only one that has come to know Lord. You've been divinely selected by God in your family to represent Jesus Christ to your parents or to your siblings, to your aunties, your uncles, to your grandparents. Whether it be in your school, you might be the only Christian in your class or amongst your group of friends. You have been divinely selected to show the love of Jesus Christ to those people in your sphere of influence whether it be at uni, whether it be at work, whether it be in your community, you have been divinely selected to represent Jesus Christ. You are God's chosen vessel to do so, not only in word, but also in deed. Why? Because Paul encourages these believers. Paul encourages us with these truths that transcend time, place, or culture. It transcends all of those things, those same things that have been imparted, these same truths to encourage these Thessalonian believers and who they are apply to us in the here and now. That we are empowered by the Spirit to be who we are, to live as those who are loved of God and chosen in Christ. Or in other words, when John exhorts the church in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, that we are to live in Christ 
sorry, those who claim to live in Christ must live as Jesus did. An attainable charge because the Spirit grants us the ability and the means to do so. What an encouragement to new believers. What an encouragement to old believers. What an encouragement for us that this is who we are. This is what we are made. And just as Paul referred to their identity here as to who they are in Christ, it then in turn points to their action, what they did. And that's in verses 6 to 9, uh, 9a. Okay. If you look at the result that takes place from the understanding and acceptance of what one has become through faith in Christ, we read this in verse 6 about imitation. You read, you have become imitators of us and of the Lord. They say imitation is the highest form of flattery, but I think, I think that is entirely dependent upon what and who you are trying or attempting to imitate. As a matter of fact, um, I think the person, uh, sorry, as a matter of fact, the, the person you desire to imitate indicates more of who the imitator is rather than the one who is being imitated. Like, for example, you don't want to imitate me. You don't want to imitate me. That's, that's dangerous. You, know, you don't want to imitate Jono. That's even worse. But you, you, you have to be very careful. You're very careful. We are, we are told Paul. Paul boldly stated this to the immature Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Meaning that the example that he set in following Jesus was a standard applicable to all Christians. So then how did the Thessalonian church manifest this imitation of Paul and of the Lord? Well, it was through active acceptance. Let me explain what that is. Active acceptance. If you read, For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. There was a, value, a valuing and an appreciation of the gospel truth, regardless of the context. It's easy to believe when things are sweet. It's actually easy for us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ when we live in Australia, which is a great country, which is a great country, and we have that privilege. But what about in the country of persecution? What about in a country where to name the name of Christ could result in you losing your life? Well, this is what faced the Thessalonians. If you recall in Acts 17, the religious leaders, were ch they chased out Paul and Silas and Timothy. They chased those guys out of the city. Just because those guys had left doesn't mean the persecution stopped for the Thessalonians. Thus, they still held on to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of severe suffering. The gospel had taken such a hold of their hearts that in the face of such things, they stood steadfast. So instead of retreating, they leaned more into the power of God that Christ provided and experienced the joy of God's presence and the power of his Holy Spirit. Have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed how you are able to continue in something irrespective of what takes place? Have you ever noticed that, well, especially when it comes to sharing, when you're sharing and then God fulfills his word by giving you the word, the appropriate words to say, 
at that specific time. Usually you don't experience such things unless you're in that circumstance. God and his grace provides. And, and what resulted was the, the commending of Paul in verse 7. So you became a model of all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Now, that's a, a, powerful, a very powerful testimony. Now, my knowledge of modeling is limited to Pastor Fritz. Uh, so Pastor Fritz... He was a model back in the day. I mean, you can see it. He's a very good-looking very good looking man. I look just like him. But anyway, but he was a model back in the day because of his build, because of his features, because of his, uh, his blue steel pout. Um, he, he had all that stuff going for him. And he would walk on the catwalk. He even had that, the whole turn down the end and all that sort of stuff. I've seen some of his shows. But he would walk on the catwalk, and, and he would wear clothes, and basically it was like, this is how they are supposed to look. He presented the way certain clothes looked. He presented the way certain clothes moved while you walked. He presented the way clothes actually functioned, whether they were practical or not. The Thessalonian church is referred to here as a model. And I guess you could say that their catwalk is living the Christian life in front of those around them. And thus they were to present uh, the way believers were supposed to look. The way believers were supposed to present the Lord Jesus Christ. They were to present how, 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 they, how they moved. How they moved, meaning, meaning how they lived their life following the Lord Jesus. And they were supposed to present how the reality of Jesus Christ functioned in everyday life. This is, this is the, the commending that Paul gives this church. If you recall, a number of months ago, we looked at truths for the church. And I think it's safe to say that these Thessalonian believers modeled this in Macedonia and Achaia. You look in verse 8 that the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. They presented the church's uniqueness as it was purchased by the precious blood of Jesus in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. They presented the church's role as the body of Christ functioning together in, say, Romans 12, 5. They, they presented the church's purpose in Ephesians 4.16 that they support every ligament as it grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The Thessalonian church was a model of love, a model of grace, a model of compassion, a model of acceptance, a model of holiness and, and righteousness, a model of, of Jesus' hands to reach out with the gospel, a model of Jesus' feet to go where other people fear to tread. A model of love that the world doesn't know or ever will know unless we as a church follow the model that's presented by these believers and show the love of Jesus. For we read the effects of this model in verse 9. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. It moves. It moves. That testimony has an impact with people all, all around. Uh, many, many, many years ago, 
the gentleman who planted our church back in New Zealand, uh, John Mansell, who is, for those who know, Pastor Roger, his father-in-law, he had an amazing testimony where, and Pastor Roger shared with me the story, he went to a conference in New Zealand and he was in Auckland. His father-in-law lived down in the South Island, in a little country town. And this man comes up to Pastor Roger and says, what's with your father-in-law? And he goes, what do you mean? And he goes, he's got a reputation of being a man who just shares the gospel with anyone, anywhere, no matter what. And there was this testimony that, that John had, John Mantle had, of just proclaiming the gospel. And it was from a guy, a complete stranger, that Pastor Roger had never known. And yet it reached him. It was, just, it was an amazing testimony. An amazing testimony of people all over, of, of say, Martin Garcia, where I've gone places and then someone would say, yeah, I know Martin Garcia. Hey, I know him too. And you, just have, the, you have this testimony which just goes around. That's not because these men are great, but rather because God is great working in these men's lives and they have this testimony shining forth who Jesus is. And I think that's absolutely brilliant. But while you might have this, while you might have this identity of knowing who you are, while you might have this, this action of, of what is done, one of the contributing factors that enables you to do this, I think, with the Thessalonian believers here, is evident as well. And that is one of one's vision, where they hope. In verses 9b to 10, I want to read this to you because only a couple of verses. It says, They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is something which is a theme all throughout this letter. Every chapter, every chapter, Paul makes reference to the return of the Lord Jesus. So they had a testimony of a transformed life, of repentance from idols, from man-made gods, and turning to the living, true God. And a part of the reason why such a turning could take place was due to the future hope that lay before them. This hope was not some, some pie in the sky, by and by when I die. It is, the, it is in the person of Christ who said he is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. It is in the person of Christ who said he is the resurrection and the life, in John eleven twenty five. It is in the person of Christ who said he is the door or, or the gate by which people must enter to be saved, in John 10, 9. It is, the person of, it is on the person of Christ who delivered all, who delivered everything that he said he would deliver. And then some. It was, it was, the, it was then, it was when the promise of his return is made that the fact that it's going to happen because he is the one who made it. He is the one who made it. I used this illustration a while ago. But like Pastor Ben, Pastor Ben's an amazing man of God, an amazing man of God. But you know when Pastor Ben says something, you take confidence in that. Why? Because you know he'll do it. He's a man of his word. Once again, it's not based upon the fact of, of the promise itself. It's upon who made the promise. And we know for a fact, according to Titus chapter 1, verse 2, that it is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for the Lord Jesus to lie. And so as you look at this approaching finality, 
Uh, as you look at the fact that things can and will come to an end, and when we come to that end, in Christ we will receive a rest, we can be encouraged as to what awaits us, as to who awaits us, so that we can be about what we've been created to do, knowing, knowing that there will come, or there, so there will be an end to it. The scriptures teach how we are to walk as in the day. We are to work as in the day because there will come a time when we won't get to do this anymore. This will come a time when we won't get to, to walk by faith anymore because we'll be in his presence. There will come a time we won't get to witness anymore because that time will come to an end. That's why we must, as Ephesians says, redeem the time for the days are evil and to redeem the time because at any time our Lord might return. And when he comes, according to Luke 18, verse 8, will he find faith on the earth? How, how then does awaiting or looking for the Lord's return resonate with you? How does it resonate with me? Are we, are we eager? Are we zealous? Are, are, we, are we looking or, or prepared because we are told the Lord comes like a thief in the night. So are we, are we expectant of his return in such a way? Are we prepared like the five wise virgins that took extra oil for their lamps to await their master's return? Are we, are we like that? Or have we, become, have we become apathetic due to time and circumstance that views the promises of, say, John 14 verses 1 to 3 as a comforting word to give us a tentative hope. Is that, is that how we view the Lord's return now? Which it's not tentative because we're told that he can't lie. So we know he's going to come back. Have we fallen prey to that circumstance and become the people like 2 Peter chapter 2, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4? It says this in the King James. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Have we fallen prey to such mentality as that? Dave Hunt observed the mindset of today's church and made the following diagnosis. He says, life has become so filled with efforts to cover every financial contingency, so filled with efforts to realize one, one's full earthly potential, and so filled with efforts to finally retire comfortably that without realizing it, we are finding our hope in this world rather than in God. I want to read that one more time. Life has become so filled with efforts to cover every financial contingency, so filled with efforts to realize one's earthly potential, and so filled with efforts to finally retire comfortably that without realizing it, we are finding our hope in this world rather than in God. If our hope, if yours and my hope is in a temporal future, meaning that we're just looking 
to retire. We're just looking to take it easy. We're just looking to, to reap the rewards of hard work and kick back and relax. We may completely forget that heaven is our home, that heaven is our final destination. If our identity is summed up in what the world thinks of us, then we may become ashamed of our privilege of being called God's son or God's daughter. If our action is governed by the ways of the world and what's considered acceptable and unacceptable or noteworthy from a, from a worldly perspective, it may cause you and I to become weary in our godly living. If our vision is only for the here and the now, then our goals become short-sighted and fragile, especially in comparison to eternity. So what can we do? What can you and I do? Never forget. Never forget who you are in Christ. Never forget what Christ has done to make you his own. Never forget. This is, this is why it's called the old, old story. That's why we have that hymn, Tell Me the Old, Old Story. Because we need to be continually reminded of the love of God in Jesus Christ. And that the love of God in Jesus Christ has revealed to you and I that we are chosen by Him. We are loved by Him. We are set apart for Him. We are empowered through Him. And we are secure through the cross and in the person of Christ. Never forget. Never forget. We need to be reminded of that continually. Never forget that you and I have been called to live for him, enabled by his spirit to do his will. And we are granted the honor to live in righteousness, the honor to represent, the honor to be an ambassador, the honor to hold forth the word of life. That is what we have been given. Never forget that privilege that has been granted to us. And never forget that our future hope is assured because he is the one who assured it for us. That our destiny is secure. Why? Because he is the one who secured it for us. That our joy is eternal because our joy is in him who is eternal. Because Jesus has promised us that he is coming back for us. Never forget, never forget who we are, never forget what we do, and never forget where we hope. I pray, I pray that this will be something that would go beyond here, but rather go here and move out there. May this be a truth as we look at the encouragement from the scriptures over the coming weeks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the love you have revealed to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you very much, Lord, for who you have made us in him, born again by your spirit, sealed by him as well, and privileged to be called your son and daughter. Thank you so much for the calling and that the action you have laid upon us as well, that we can fulfill that calling because you have enabled us to do so, that we might live in holiness, that we might live in love, and that we might live in accordance with your ways and with your desires. 
And lastly, Lord, give us a vision that looks beyond the here and now, to have our vision set on things above, not on things on the earth, to look to the eternal and not the temporal. Father, we pray you will continue that beautiful work that you've begun in us because of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see, Lord, who we are. Help us to see what we are to do. And help us to see as we look to the future and await your return. In Jesus' mighty name we pray.